please open up to the book of First Peter. First Peter. Uh, if you need a church Bible down the center aisles, it's page 588. It's practically in the back of the book. And uh, <coughs> we're going to First Peter. This is a, a brand new series. We've called it Elect Exiles Following Jesus in a World That Doesn't. So imagine for a moment it's the first century, okay? So just try and cast your, back, your mind back to... Uh, the first century, 2,000 years ago, and storm clouds are beginning to form over a particular group of people who were alive during the first century. Uh, and these storm clouds were not organized, state-sponsored, empire-wide persecution or torture or imprisonment or execution. That would come within maybe 18 months, two or three years. This group of people in the first century who were a group of people who refused to worship the gods of the culture. This were a group of people who practiced some odd new customs that hadn't been seen in the world before. This is a group of people who believed in a God who became a man and died on a cross and was buried in a tomb and was resurrected on the third day. This was a group of Christians who were living under storm clouds. Okay? And they were beginning to feel as if they no longer fitted or belonged to the world in which they were born into. They were facing increasing mistreatment and abuse and ridicule and shame because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps it looks something like this. Perhaps they were mocked in the marketplace. Perhaps they had friends and they would go and they would buy their olives and their grapes and their wine. Uh, and perhaps former friends laughed at them because they believed in such fanciful myths and fantasies like Jesus. Perhaps they were experiencing nastiness in the neighborhood where neighbors would turn their backs in scorn and indignation because they believed in a crucified Messiah. Perhaps they were silenced or shunned at the school gate as conversations between other parents kind of dried up as these people approached because Christians are weird. Perhaps it was opposition in the office where co-workers made life difficult or spread rumors about them because of their different practices and beliefs. Maybe it was a feuding family situation where families had got angry at family members, at sons or daughters or mothers or fathers or cousins because they had substituted this Jesus for their history, their ancestry, their past. Certainly, whatever the situation was, living publicly for Jesus and speaking publicly for Jesus had brought these Christians unwelcome, low-level grief and a kind of a growing hostility because of their faith in Jesus. Christianity in this first century was not accepted nor acceptable. So what would they do? What would these Christians do as the threats grew and as the temptations abounded to compromise their faith, to give up their, their beliefs and submit to the cultural agenda so that they might avoid opposition? Would they compromise? Or would they capitulate completely and just fall in line with the world around them, renounce their faith and reject Jesus to avoid persecution? What would they do? 
Now imagine turning up to, to a gathering of people a bit like this on a Sunday morning in the first century and you hear someone stand up at the front and say, look, this morning we're really excited because we have received a handwritten note from the Apostle Peter. Okay, know who the Apostle Peter is? He's that legendary disciple of Jesus, isn't he? He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was an eyewitness to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Jesus that we believe in. And he's written to us. I wonder what he's got to say. Let's listen. Let's read it so that he, maybe he's got words of hope to impart to us living under the storm clouds. Now, hit the fast forward button and come into the 20th century this morning, 2nd of September, 2018. Because that pre-Christian world of the first century isn't too different from our post-Christian world of the 21st century. Similar storm clouds are gathering over our heads. If you get on the internet and you Google Open Doors, which is a charity uh, set up to monitor and care for and provide information about Christians who are persecuted all around the world, you will discover that there are on their watch list, 50 countries that are the most dangerous countries to be a Christian in, okay? And in those 50 countries, more than 200 million Christians are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. These are places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, other North African nations, and the Middle East. They record that up to the the reporting period for 2018, which I think is the first six months of the year, 3,000 Christians have been killed this year in the first six months of the year, which is more than double all that were killed for their faith in Christ last year. Now, traditionally, as Western English-speaking Christians, we have watched on perhaps at the persecuted church around the world. Perhaps we've offered up a prayer here and there for them as we see atrocities happening in Nigeria and North Korea and Afghanistan places, countries that we can't pronounce, places that we'll never visit, um, and we have watched from a distance, but we must not fail to read the signs of the times because we now, in the English-speaking world, we might not be currently facing organized, state-sponsored, worldwide persecution in the form of imprisonment or torture or execution. That might come, but we are encountering, just like these first century Christians were, the reality of progressive intolerance, growing hostility in a, from a culture that says biblical Christianity is not accepted and not acceptable. Just flick on the news and you will see Christians are maligned and mocked and marginalized and discriminated against simply because of our faith in a crucified Messiah, because we choose to believe in him and in his word and in the truth of his Bible concerning an exclusive salvation, concerning sin and the need for salvation, concerning God's plan for manhood and womanhood and gender and marriage and sexuality. And so you see bakers taken to court because they won't bake cakes for a same-sex marriage. You see nurses lose their jobs because they wear crosses or because they pray for patients. We shouldn't be surprised by this because Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and he says, listen, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's, it's the norm for 
the Christian. And so perhaps you and I this morning, perhaps we don't live under the threat of death, but perhaps we live being mocked in the marketplace or experiencing nastiness from our neighbours, or being shunned at the school gate, or opposition in the office, or families who feud because we are Christians. If you haven't, and I haven't really at this point, be warned, it's coming. There will be a day when we will be persecuted for our faith because Jesus tells us through Paul, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted Threats will increase. Temptations to abandon Jesus and to compromise on our beliefs, to fit in with the culture, or to capitulate completely, abound. What will we do? Now imagine that you gather together on a Sunday morning and someone stands at the front and says, we've got a letter from the Apostle Peter who's going to tell us how to live and follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. Wouldn't you want to hear from him? That's why we're going to study this book together over the coming months. That's why we need this little letter of 1 Peter tucked way back in the back of your Bible. You could blink and miss it and end up in the concordance. But 1 Peter is written to churches like ours, to people like us for such a time as this. And we need to desperately read and study and wrestle with and believe and apply and treasure this book as we face attack from the world that lives in rebellion to God. He's going to help us follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. We're only going to look at two verses this morning. So would you read with me verses 1 and 2 of First Peter? Then we'll pray and then we'll get stuck in. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied, or perhaps in your translation, be yours in abundance. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize the signs of the times and the challenges we face to be Christians in a 21st century world. Lord, we can despair and be worried about where this world is going and how are we going to survive the onslaught and the challenge of the culture that stands against you. Thank you that you've given us your word to equip us and to prepare us and to strengthen us. May our study of 1 Peter have that effect. And may grace and peace be multiplied to each of us this morning, we pray, for God's glory. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing to say is that this is more than just the customary greeting in a letter between friends. This is dense and packed and theologically rich. Just two verses, okay? 
Just two verses. That's all I wanted to limit ourselves to this morning because there's so much here. Now, the first thing before we jump into the main uh, thrust of what I want to say this morning and what I believe God has for us is that this was written by the Apostle Peter. Okay, it's it's there in verse one. This letter is written by Peter, who was a witness, not just to what Jesus said and did while he was on earth, but to the meaning and to the purpose and to the, the significance of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter defines himself and acknowledges that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means that he was commissioned by the risen Christ to be his messenger And so when we read these words, we read Peter speaking and writing, not personal opinion or wisdom or even just kind of like warm hearted advice. But God's word, his apostolic binding word, if you like, backed with all of the authority of Jesus is spoken to us this morning. This is Christ speaking to his church through Peter. Comes with Christ's authority. Because Peter speaks as an apostle of Jesus. And if you'll, if you'll just bear with me and go to chapter 5 a minute, so flick over a, a couple of pages, you will discover that Peter is not just some distant, dispassionate messenger who speaks with authority. He also comes alongside them in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, I exhort the elders among you, the leaders of your church, as a fellow elder. So he's speaking as a pastor and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He says to the leaders of that church, to the pastors, shepherd the flock. Okay? Shepherd the flock on behalf, verse 4, of the chief shepherd, if you like. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So pastor the people that you've been given like the chief shepherd would pastor them. And I'm doing that now, he says, as a fellow elder, through this letter. So Peter is not just a dispassionate messenger. He's shepherding these people as they live under persecution. He's the apostle inspired by the Spirit with the authority of Jesus who's coming and bringing tender words that persecuted Christians need to hear from God himself. Words that we need to hear. So imagine the chief shepherd looks on from heaven and sees the trouble and says, I know the medicine that's needed. And he speaks and breathes out this book to us this morning. Now, what is that medicine? Well, two points this morning from these two verses. To strengthen us right off the bat. To live in a world and follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. Peter wants us to remember who we are and remember whose we are. Remember who we are. Remember whose we are. Let's begin with remember who we are. Verse 1. These original recipients were living in what we call Turkey today. Okay, so that list of places, it's Turkey. Okay, and it was a universal letter written to several churches that were scattered throughout the far fringes of the Roman Empire. And it's written to Gentiles, to people who were not Jews. They had somehow come to hear the gospel, perhaps through Paul's missionary efforts on his journeys that you can read about in Acts. He certainly wrote to Galatians, didn't he? But likely as well that perhaps the gospel had spread to these regions because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches his sermon, we find out that there's people from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. So they were in Jerusalem celebrating the, the Pentecost and Peter 
empowered by the Spirit, preaches the message. And these people were perhaps, they heard that message, got saved and were numbered among the 3,000 that were saved that day. And then they went back home and they preached the gospel and planted churches. And now Peter's following up on them with this letter. They were former pagans. They had previously been outside the Old Testament people of God. They were living on the edge of the empire and now they were experiencing opposition. And so they probably considered themselves to be a small, insignificant minority in a world going headlong to hell. And Peter comes along and he says, listen, you guys, you guys living on the fringes, you guys with no spiritual pedigree, you guys who don't fit into the world around you, let me tell you, you are God's elect. Oh, there's a whole weight of biblical doctrine that holds, just that's encapsulated in that one word, elect. You are God's elect. You are chosen by God. You are in a privileged position of having been incorporated from the fringes into the very center of God's people and God's eternal plans and God's eternal purposes that he's outworking through his People. Imagine the comfort as Peter, who's recorded in Acts 10 as the apostle who, who saw the gospel go to the Gentiles through Cornelius for the very first time, now writes to these Gentiles and says, listen, you are the elect. Just as I confirmed the gospel went to Cornelius and to the Samaritans and to the world beyond Jerusalem, so now I'm confirming you are God's elect. You're included in his great and precious promises. Now, the word elect or chosen obviously applied to Old Testament Israel. You can read all the way through Isaiah. God speaks to them about his, Israel being his chosen people, his elect. But now Peter widens it and says, all, everyone, everyone united to Jesus Christ in faith from the first century to the 21st century to us this morning, we're included in the elect of Jesus Christ. God's chosen and precious people. Edmund Clowney, who's an old, uh, a New Testament scholar and commentator on the book of First Peter, says this. We should feel the drama in this description. Peter is primarily writing to Gentiles, to those who had no part in the people of God, but who followed the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Chapter 118. They had lived to the full uh, the Gentile life of debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. 4 verse 3. He now greets them. These former pagans. As God's chosen and holy people. Nothing should be more astonishing. You see that book? Verse 1. We were, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. English verse, words, if you like, after Peter and Apostle, six words into this book and already there's comfort. You're elect. You're Gentiles. People like you and me. If you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. We're God's chosen people. God's chosen people. His very precious people. It's supposed to encourage us this morning. We're God's people. That's who we are. But there's more. Did you notice? Because it goes on to say elect exiles. Yes, you're part of God's chosen precious people. But part of being joined to Christ and united with Christ and aligning with Christ and taking up that new identity that he gives us. It actually sets us in opposition to the world around us. 
See, we were once aligned here with this world and then we cross over, if you like, through the cross into being Christ's people. That puts us at odds with the world around us just by the very nature of identifying ourselves with Jesus. We become foreigners. We become sojourners. We become aliens and strangers to a foreign land. It's, it's a language, again, exile is a language couched in much Old Testament history. If you read your Old Testament, you'll discover that God's... Yeah, People, Israel, faced lengthy periods of time where they were exiled from Jerusalem and from Israel, from the land that God had given them. They were living away from home. Many were deported to Babylon where they were under enormous pressure to uh, assimilate and to conform to the culture, the ungodly surrounding pagan culture. And if they offered any kind of resistance, what happened to them? They were persecuted. They were suffering. For One of the biggest examples is Daniel in the book of Daniel. He, he gets deported to Babylon. He's in exile away from Jerusalem. He continues to pray and reach out to his God, although there's a law that says you can only pray to the king, to King Darius. And what happens to Daniel? He gets thrown in the lion's den. That's persecution, man. But God preserves him. You see, in the Old Testament, exile was, was something that happened to God's people because they disobeyed. But here, it takes on a different note. Because exile here is not because of disobedience and God's discipline against his people. Exile happens here in First Peter because we're obedient to God. The Gentiles had faith in Jesus Christ. It had radically transformed them from darkness to light, from death to life. We'll see those imageries as we work our way through the book. They were given new citizenship. They were given new hearts. They were given um, <clears throat> new passports, if you like, of the kingdom of God that they had been brought into. But their location hadn't changed. Their status had changed, but their location hadn't changed. And so it just put them as exiles. And as they sought to live faithful and fruitful lives for the glory of God, with new hearts and new desires and new beliefs and new actions and new love and new motivation, as they sought to live out this new life that Christ had given them, it put them at odds with the world around them. They were exiles. Now, to be an exile here is not... Peter's not trying to discourage. He's trying to encourage them. God has changed you. He's saved you. He's transformed you. He's brought you into his people. You've received a new identity with a new home and a new passport and a new life. Oh, it might be hard right now, but that's the promise that awaits you. You're in exile, but one day you'll go home. So this morning for us, I think Peter wants to encourage us with the same comfort and encouragement. We who have had, who have exercised faith in Jesus Christ, who believe him and have bowed our knee as Lord and Savior, we find ourselves this morning temporal residents, aliens. Believe in aliens in the world? Yep, that's you and me. Not extraterrestrial, we're just eternal beings, strangers. Sojourners in a world that's not our home. John Stott used to talk about living between two worlds. That's what we are. We're living between two worlds. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. 
Therefore, one of the implications that we'll see as Peter walks us through this book is that we're not to give up. We're not to give in and align ourselves with the godless and ungodly world around us or the age, the spirit of the age. We're not to compromise and capitulate. He's going to help us to live in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. But he wants us right away to see we're elect exiles. We're different. Our allegiance is different. No matter what the cost, we must walk in line with our allegiance to Christ. And maybe that will Bring imprisonment and torture and even execution one day. But the hope is though we live in exile, a great home awaits us. We'll get into that next week when we get into verses 3 through 12. But right now, it's easy just to say, the hope that we have in the face of of living for Christ in a world that doesn't is anchored in heaven. A hope is anchored in heaven. We're to remember who we are. We're God's people, chosen, precious, living in a world that's hostile to us because it's hostile to our king. But he's coming back for us. Hang in there. The second thing that Peter wants us to to remind us is that we're to remember not just who we are, but whose we are. Whose we are, okay? How is it? That these crooked pagans and Gentiles have come to be God's elect exiles. Something must have happened to them, mustn't it? Something must have happened to them in order to bring about such a radical change. People who gave themselves to debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and idolatry are now Christ's chosen people. Something has happened to them, obviously. What? What has brought about their new identity and their new inheritance? Well, verse 2 gives us the answer. Look with me again at verse 2, where Peter says, We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ, sprinkled with his blood. It's right there. What has happened to them? Well, God has been at work upon them. Three things that Peter tells us, three ways God has been at work in the lives of these Gentiles to change them from pagans to elect exiles. He's been working at them because he chose them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Their inclusion in the people of God is not by accident. It's not by afterthought. It's not that they're second class Christians and God made a mistake with the Jews and now he's turned to the Gentiles. No, he did it by design. According to his sovereign plan and purpose that he put into place that he had in his heart and in his mind from all eternity. He chose them. He foreknew them. Listen to what Tom Schreiner in his commentary on 1 Peter says about this to just develop the thought of what it means to be foreknown by God. He says this, the word foreknowledge could simply mean that God foresaw who would be his chosen or elect. No one doubts, of course, that such an idea is included. The question is whether the term means more than this. The word know in Hebrew often refers to God's covenantal love bestowed upon his people. Genesis 18, 19, Jeremiah 1, 5, Amos 3, 2. You see that when, when you see Adam knew his wife. Jacob knew his wife, etc. There's a love part. The same notion, he goes on, Shriner says, informs Romans 8, 29. 
where we see that God has foreknown those whom he predestined. God foreknows people, not objects or things, because he sets his love on them. Therefore, when Peter said that believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he's emphasizing God's sovereignty and initiative in salvation, but also believers are elect because God the Father has set his covenantal affection upon them. See, as you read verse 2, what gets lost perhaps in our English Bibles is that we're supposed to read of the love of God for people such as us. People he has chosen before the foundation of the world to set his love upon. They are unlovely sinners, but he loves them. That's what it means to foreknow. He has known them before they were born and loved them before they were born. He's known you before you were born and he's loved you before you were born. Secondly, he goes on to say the change that these uh, that Peter's original audience received received was because through the sanctification, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are most familiar with the idea of the word sanctify and sanctification being the speaking about the progressive holiness that is brought about in the life of Christians as they seek to live for God. We're sanctified as we grow in holiness. But here Peter is using it in a slightly different way, a more technical way, because sanctify, if, if, again, if I think if you look it up in your English dictionary, you'll see one of the meanings is to set apart. To set apart for God. And that's Peter's emphasis here. He's chosen to love unlovely sinners. And through the work of the Spirit, that work of the Spirit is the regenerating work of the Spirit where he breathes new life and gives us new birth, which Jesus speaks about in John chapter 3 when he talks to Nicodemus. Jesus, uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit has sanctified us. He set us apart through the new birth, through breathing new life into our hearts, through exchanging our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel 36 prophesied. God has set us apart for him. He's brought us to faith and life and into the realm of his holy kingdom. He set us apart for God. He's loved us and he set us apart. And then there's a third thing that God has done. He's sprinkled us with Christ's blood. These pagan Gentiles have been born again, but not only have they been born again and given new life, they've also been forgiven and they've been cleansed of their guilt through the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. Now that, there's an imagery there again in the Old Testament, all the Day of Atonement stuff, all of the temple and the sacrificial systems and the blood of bulls and goats that was offered for the sins of the Old Testament people. It's all in view here because it all pointed to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. And his blood on the cross that's been poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. He shed his blood and he died at the cross to cleanse us from all and any and every sin. To accomplish a salvation for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Peter says, elect exiles have experienced the love of God, the setting apart of God and the forgiveness of God.
This isn't just doctrine, people. This isn't just truth on a page. This is supposed to move our hearts. This is supposed to steal our souls, to strengthen us, to stand firm in the massive, in the face of a massive onslaught of opposition and persecution and suffering that will follow us as we follow Christ. It's meant to fortify our hearts. It's meant to strengthen our minds for the harsh realities of living in a hostile world. We should not read these words calmly or indifferently or apathetically. They should move us. God is now our Father. He has bestowed on us his steadfast love from before the world began. He's chosen us and called us, we who were polluted, pagans and Gentiles, to be his own precious people. And he's done it through the regenerating work of the Spirit. He's done it through the sacrificing of his one and only Son to wash us clean and to redeem us from sin, death and hell. Peter wants us to see that the entire Trinity has been at work in our salvation. The entire Trinity has been involved in us becoming elect exiles. Imagine what that must have meant as these first readers read it and then think about what it means for us. So imagine you're the first in the first century. People are being maligned and mocked and ridiculed. Some people are being beaten up. Some people are being thrown in prison. It's not everybody but it's increasing all the more and so as they sit there we're aware that their world is shaking and that they the thing one things that were once settled are becoming unsettled and you don't feel like you fit and you don't feel like you belong and the friend that you grew up with in school is now cutting you off and doesn't want anything more to do with you it's okay because you belong to god when the world around you doesn't make sense When those closest to you are turning their backs on you, hurling insults at you, throwing their fists at you, rejecting you. It's okay. You belong to God. Peter here is saying, no matter what a hostile world can throw at you, no matter what you will experience as God's elect exiles in a world that doesn't follow him, your relationship with the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit cannot ever be broken. He's got you. We sing about clinging to Christ. Well, Christ has got a hold of us. And he ain't never letting us go. That's what Peter's saying here. Two verses in. Two verses. Imagine what else he's got to say to us. Two verses. Persecution is going to come. Suffering for the sake of Christ is inevitable. All who seek to live a godly life. Will be persecuted. But if God has loved you, if God the Father has loved you and chosen you before the creation of the world, if the Spirit has worked to breathe new life into you and set you apart to include you in the precious chosen people of God, and if God the Father has sacrificed his one and only son on a cross to die for your sins. Do you think he's going to let you go now? When the going gets tough. Was that, was it Billy Joel who sang that? Billy Joel? Billy Ocean, sorry. I'm not really a, you know, I'm a Christian, so I don't listen to 80s music. Uh, Billy Ocean, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. No, 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 not in God's kingdom. When the going gets tough, God says, I'm with you. And I ain't ever letting you go. How 
soul strengthening is that in the face of opposition? What a difference that makes in the face of persecution. He chose you. He called you. He set you apart to be his. He sacrificed his own son to save you. He's got you. He won't let you go. He won't let you down. He's with you. He'll keep you to the end. He'll bring you home. Why? Because you belong to him. Remember whose you are. What unspeakable, immeasurable comfort in two verses for those who live in a world hostile to Christ. For people like us. People like you and me who live 2,000 years on, but we still are saved by the, loved by the same Father, sanctified by the same Spirit, redeemed and saved by the same Christ. So regardless of our current circumstances and challenges, regardless of whether we're mocked in the marketplace or experience nastiness in the neighborhood or shunned at the school gate or experience opposition in the office or have families feuding at us because we're Christians, when we feel on the margins, when we feel small and insignificant and in a minority, when we feel the breath of persecution breathing down our necks, Peter, who experienced all of those things himself, wants us to take heart and he wants us to see we are God's elect exiles, part of his chosen people, part of his plan, loved by him, set apart for him, saved by him. And the result, the result is this, isn't it? At the end of verse two, Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Not just may grace, may this give you a little bit of grace and peace. Not may this, you know, here's, here's 10 pounds of grace and peace and here's another 10 pounds to encourage you. And you add them together and you've got 20 pounds of grace and peace. No, he's saying, may it be multiplied to you. You know, the difference between a plus and a cross, you know, 10 plus 10 is 20. 10 times 10 is 100. Multiplied. That's the effect that this is supposed to have on us. We live in a world that is hostile to us. But if we recognize who we are and whose we are, there is grace and peace in abundance. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word and your truth. That is to steal our souls in the midst of living in a world that doesn't follow you. May we remember who we are and whose we are. And may we be strengthened for the fight. Help us, Lord, I pray, to experience the multiplying abundant effect of your grace and truth and peace in our lives as we study this book for your glory. Amen.